Part of a writer's job is to read. It fills the tank, expands our empathy, teaches us new ways of envisioning the world and ourselves. The Outrider podcast presents Have You Read This? An ongoing miniseries project where we read and discuss those books we feel that, because we're writers, we probably should have read by now. So, Please join me and my intrepid co-host, Delia Tramontina, as we dive into another book from our endless list of unread classics. In this series, we discuss Juna Barnes' Nightwood. So get your glass of wine and get comfortable. So what are you drinking? I am drinking red wine, which, you know, I like to drink my wine between two weekends, but this isn't going to make it. So it's going to be two weeks old by the time I finish the bottle because I'm very like regimented about when I drink and when I don't. And oh. it might already be turn- turning to vinegar. But we'll I'm, see. I am uh, I'm not very regimented about when I drink. I think uh, I know. I think last night was the first night I did not take in any alcohol in four months. <laughs> are you sick? Huh? Were you sick? No. I just, I, for once. Were you still drunk from the night before? Nope. <laughs> nope. I, I just, uh, you know, I, I, it's me and the cats. What else am I going to do late at night? Perhaps, perhaps finally breaking down and buying um, ice cream for the first time in, in six months was maybe the reason I avoided the alcohol. So I get a little bit of that, you know, treating myself a vibe from yeah. ice cream. Thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been keeping lots of cheese in the house. Oh yeah. I like cheese. Is this going to go, is, is are our musings about what we're ingesting during the quarantine going to be part of it? It could be part of the, uh, the intro. I don't know what Heather's going to do with it. Um, so oh, any- and you don't have any say. She's like, yes, we are going to talk about cheese. Well, <laughs> she could probably, she could do something with it. I don't know. I, I leave that up to her. You know, basically I kind of say, here's, here's the audio. You know, we wouldn't, mm-hmm. we know we want to get the, the conversation in about, you know, the book, but however we lead into it, eh, we know what we're doing here. The, uh, and people that are, that are, uh, speak for yourself, <laughs> <laughs> people that are coming in to, to listen to us. Well, hi, everybody. We're drinking wine hi. and talking about a quarantine and, and getting ready to read a book. So welcome. Why don't we start that way? Welcome to the Outrider podcast, Delia, again. Thank you. I wasn't, when you interviewed me all those years ago, that was a different podcast or was that nope, this podcast? Same one. Wow, this one's been going on for a very long time. Yeah, since uh, 2013 was when I got started. Mm. And it's been morphing and doing other stuff with it. I still have the one-on-one conversations with people. One of the things, mm-hmm. one of my plans, I think we talked about this when we were setting this up. One of my plans is to get through Erica Wirth's um, books that I mm-hmm. have and, and see if she would like to come and talk on Skype with me for the show. So I still do those every now and then, but I try to do, but because I can't do consistent the way that, you know, like Mark Barron or anybody who's doing a quote unquote yeah. professional podcast can do, because I have a job and um, it, it's not quite as open ended and, and flexible as, as, you know, like Marin's stand up. And now that he's not doing that. Right. And plus, I, 
I don't I don't read as often as I should in order to really talk to a lot of writers one on one all the time. Mm. I I made probably I don't know if it's really a mistake, but I, I recently picked up a novel to read and I'm just like, it's gonna clash. I should probably do something <laughs> to get rid of that to get rid of that noise. Um gonna clash with Nightwood? Well, just that like I usually just read one novel at a time and then like I'm like, oh I, I ran out you know, I I was done with books, so I picked up the next book and I'm just like, oh, I'm gonna be reading two novels at once. <laughs> I doubt they're gonna morph into each other. But you never but, know. Uh, I'm pretty sure they won't. But no. you know. So I I I read a bunch of uh, biographical stuff on Dejuna Barnes. Is that how she pronounced it? Dejuna? Dejuna, I think was that's what I was looking at on I I did look up specifically some pronunciation stuff and it that's I believe how it's supposed to go. Dejuna. Okay. Or Juna, something like that. But it's, yeah, it it's not familiar to the tongue. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, yeah. The D isn't quite silent so much as like just making like a guest appearance. Right. Yeah. Yep. And you know the interesting thing I did find before I get before we get too much into her biography mm-hmm. is that she was very close friends with Mr. James Joyce, mm. who you know, was our previous, you know, unread book that we challenged. So I know she read Ulysses and she was really into it, Uh but you probably read more than me. I did not realize that they were good friends. Oh yeah. Yeah. They were all part of the uh, expatriate community there in Paris. And where where was it? Oh, I'm, I'm looking at the, uh, the new world encyclopedia. Oh, (laughs) um, page here. Yes, Paris. She actually went to Paris with an introduction to Ezra Pound and James Joyce. She arrived with letters of introduction to Pound and Joyce. Mm-hmm. And she's and um, let's see, it was. Uh, so and so she was actually had a letter of introduction to Joyce, got her set up. They became friends. She loved, of course, Ulysses. Yeah. She was also friends with the writer Mina Loy, uh, Kate mm-hmm. Boyle, um, Robert McAlman. Natalie Barney, um, and became, uh, and later of course became lifelong associate of, of Peggy Guggenheim mm-hmm. of that family. All of that from the, uh, the Paris days. Gertrude Stein was in there too, I think. Yep. yep. So she knew everybody. In fact, uh, in, in Woody Allen's little movie, that Paris at midnight that he made with yeah. Owen Wilson, she didn't have, yeah. a, she, they, I don't remember the name of the actress that did her little did the, the Juna Barnes character, but she didn't even have any lines in the oh, movie. Was she just, in there? Yeah. Somebody made a comment ah. about her, but she, but the character of the Juna Barnes in that, in that film didn't have any lines. It's like, what? Oh, okay. we have to look that up. I'm so IMDBing that. <laughs> it's probably going to be like someone who's like famous now that we didn't know about. Right. What was it? Midnight in Paris? Yeah, I think it was Midnight in Paris. Yeah, so she was you know really involved and enmeshed with that with that parish entourage so i'm gonna let's wait i should backtrack a little bit because she does not she was not just like a a random um introduction into into uh, the artistic and literary community her grandmother zadel barnes was a Mm -hmm. writer poet and journalist and she actually and uh and 
Okay, I've never heard of this person. Um, also involved in the the suffrage movement. Yep, yep. Um, a, a, f- a very staunch Emmanuel feminist. Zahn. Ah, from the the movie. That's who played um, Juno Barnes. Ah. She was in one other, what I assume is a French movie, and that was it. Okay. Yeah. So yes. <laughs> so grandma. Grandma was a big um, deal. Um, her father yeah. was also, you know, a writer, but apparently a total failure. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and possibly a prick. Yeah, possibly a. Well, he definitely was a polygamist. He he was married to a to Dejuna's mother, but also had his uh, mistress Fanny Clark living in the house with them. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't I think call him. It makes him a bigamist. Yes, but, uh, but he wanted to marry them both, I'm sure. He was in favor of polygamy, but was not a Mormon. Yes. Right. It was so I guess also... Good. But I guess what he, you know, if if he were alive today, he would be in the, he would be polyamorous. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. So there's a lot of... Um, and she, I think, was kind of open to that, too. Um, yeah. But in, but there were, there was also talk that he may have raped her mm-hmm. and uh, married off to a fifty two year old right or allowed a friend to rape her with his knowledge and consent yeah yeah so one of the two and there may have been some weirdly inappropriate sexual encounters between her and grandma whom she shared a bed with did you read oh, that right. one yeah yeah there's possible incest in there yeah yeah weird weird family because they all live together grandma father wife, mistress, and all these mixed kids all lived together in one house and were supported by Zadell with her, with her speaking and feminist writing. Because, mm-hmm. like I said, dad, Wald Barnes, was a failure <laughs> at mm-hmm. everything. But mom believed in him till the end, at least from the biographical stuff I came across. <laughs> so I'm, I, I'm not too impressed with dad. <laughs> and yeah so she of course that was she was born in 1892 so she was probably a, a bit of on the uh, older side for the for the lost generation and the that paris expatriate group i was also I know, I know we haven't gotten to the end of her life yet but i have to say like i was really kind of pleased with like her birthday like she's exactly she was exactly like 90 and six days old when she died if you look at her 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 birthday and her death dates are very matching and that gives a certain amount of pleasure i was surprised as i was reading her biography that she lived that long oh yeah because because i'm like oh this is not this is ending soon and then i reminded myself that she actually lived to be 90 yeah even despite all the alcoholism and everything Mm -hmm. which i find you know I guess that's something about writers that I've always, you know, had this kind of love-hate romantic, you know, relationship with, you know, the, uh, the, the, the pained, you know, struggling, yeah, you know, agonizing, angsty artist who, uh, who drinks themselves, drinks themselves to death or something like that. And it has a certain romantic quality, but it's also devastating in a way because it's like, well, what would have Fitzgerald done if he hadn't drank himself to death? What would have Barnes done if she hadn't? Well, been... she was yeah, she it wasn't going well for a while. Yeah, because recluse and because 
after after Nightwood, she vanished. And the only thing she wrote was a play that got any, you know. She wrote the play, the Antiphon, and but then all the other stuff was was constantly revised and never published and never and mm-hmm. everything else came out posthumously mm, okay. after Antiphon. But so yeah, I mean how much how much more could she have gotten published if she hadn't been crippling herself? Mm-hmm. Right. And she's also a woman writing back then too. So, you know, the deck the deck was stacked. True. But, you know, um, Martha Gellhorn produced Late Into Life. Um, so did uh, Eudora Welty and, and mm-hmm. um, you know, Carson McCullough's short life was pretty productive. Not that her life was terribly short. She wasn't like one of the 27 Club, but, you know, she did have a, she did start early. She was by... Uh, because with the biographical information, the family moved to New York in 1912, and she almost immediately started writing for newspapers and mm-hmm. wrote for all of them. And, of course, it was uh, three years later that she published her first book, The Book of Repulsive Women, which I would like to s- get my hands on just to see. She they said up- in, one of, uh, in some of the stuff I read, they said that she eventually became to be embarrassed by that book. <laughs> yep. I think that's kind of why I want to read it more than anything is, you know, a lot of writers often have a little bit of a cringe, you know, reaction to their first book. Like, Oh, I was so young. It was whatever. But this mm-hmm. was like, a, she would, some of the stuff I read said that she, when she found copies, she would burn them. I thought that's a special kind of hate. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting because one of the things I noticed in my research was that as you went through and you know, read about people that she encountered that helped her out and how they became characters in Nightwood. Mm-hmm. Right. So this guy, Guido Bruno, that uh, helped her get the first book published is inspired some characters in in Nightwood. The the Felix Volkbein character. Yeah, that, that's kind of been the thing. I was There was two things I was going to say about that. About the characters being well, about, based about, on yeah, you? about all of that. Uh, well, one of it is that you know I think because the modernists were 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 and even the the beats were also terrible about this about making it obvious and talking about how they were taking real people from their lives and fictionalizing them. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I think that led to a lot of a lot of the shitty questions that writers get when they go on readings and stuff like that, and the in the assumption that we are somehow always fictionalizing our our own lives, mm-hmm. and it kind of drives me batty. It's like we we've decided that if you write a certain type of book, it doesn't involve imagination, right? It doesn't involve extending yourself beyond your own direct experience. It's all, you're just so recycling they, your life. Are those questions that you got as a novelist? Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. have you ever been to Bosnia? What did you, I was like, no. Mm. Do, you, do you know people that were, no. <laughs> you know, were you a, were you a photojournalist? No. 
I'm a writer. I write stories. I had a story. Mm -hmm. The, Mm -hmm. the only, the only, you know, direct correspondence between my life and that book was that it got started with a short story that I wrote in order to get rid of a crush on a girl I worked with. (laughs) Well, I mean, who was I talking to about this? Oh, I wasn't. I was sending a Marco Polo to my friend who's also a novelist, who's also written stuff where she had to do an extensive amount of research. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think there is something in, in your case, right. To be able to write about a place you've never been. Right. Like it takes a certain amount of work. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, obviously. Um, so I think in that case, I kind of get the question because you're very obviously not in Bosnia right now. Right. Like, right. Um, so if I were to, but if you are writing a book that takes place in Kansas, do you get those questions? Well, I've I've not ever had anything published yet that was set in Kansas. And, <laughs> and one day, one day, yeah, and it's going to be interesting, particularly I mean, just Evolution of Shadows is partially in Kansas, isn't it? Yeah, there is part of it. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. No one asks about that part. They no don't one... ask if you've ever been in a bed race, right? Do they? Right. Do they ask you that? Nope. Okay. Yeah, they. You know, have you? And, uh, no, uh-uh. that's a phenomena that exists, though. You didn't just make it yeah. up. No, that they okay. no, they've they've I've seen those at at various, you know, like county fairs and fall festivals and that type of, of I've things. I've never heard of it. I've yeah. never heard of it before. Yeah. In, for reading in it. fact, at the Wichita River Festival um, every year, they have, you know, what they call the uh, the uh, what is it? It's the uh, antique bathtub race. And mm. you don't actually use an antique bathtub, but the thing is to build a boat that you then we then put on the river and, and race them. Lots of failures for that, but mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so it's it's that type of thing. It's that weird Midwestern, you know, throw some shit together and turn it into a competition at a festival and woohoo, you know, pie mm-hmm. eating contest, hot dog eating contest. That all comes from fucking America. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, but but we digress. We I very much digress. So yeah, so you know that was oh that was the other thing I was going to say is as I was reading through Barnes's biography, one of the things that kind of struck me was that she was she very much had this forced gump like quality, not in that she was you know an idiot savant or anything like that, <laughs> but. That she constantly was like bumping into and becoming friends with people that had weird connections to moments in Uh-oh. history, right? Like, um, yeah. So she was part of the Providence Players, and she um, had connections to Edna St. Vincent Millay, Wallace Stevens, Theodore Dreiser, Eugene O'Neill, these huge American poets and playwrights. Um, the Guggenheim family. Mm-hmm. She was tied with them. Um, she was engaged to this guy, Ernst Hansfegel, or something like that, who, you know, during World War I became disillusioned with anti-German sentiment in America and later became close personal friends with Adolf Hitler. It's like, mm-hmm. what the fuck? She, there was some friend of hers. She kind of dodged a bullet on that guy. Yeah. There was a yeah. friend of hers that, um, who's, who's, oh, it was Guggenheim. It was Peggy Guggenheim, whose father had died on the Titanic. It's like, you know, 
so that was kind of the thing that kind of made me chuckle as I was going through her biography. She has all these weird connections here and there where it's like, oh, she knew this person who, you know, <laughs> was related to a, a, a Titanic fatality. She knew this person who mm-hmm. hung out with Hitler and then defected from from Nazi Germany because, of course, I guess he wasn't such a bad person. <laughs> Whatever. So, Yeah. And I was very interested, you know, at her time in um, Greenwich Village in the 1910s before she left for Paris, right? That was the hotbed for the uh, the American subculture, you know, of, of uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and all the uh, the unacknowledged uh, substrate of, 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 you know, human existence was collecting in Greenwich Village in the 1910s. Mm-hmm. And she was involved with that. And all the while, of course, you know, she was writing and doing her thing and and, you know, ended up in Paris with those letters of introduction to Ezra Pound and James Joyce. But she went, oh, she was on assignment from McCall's. Right. Mm-hmm. Have you read any of her other stuff? Have you read um, The Lady's Almanac? No. I'm interested to kind nope. of pick that up, too, to see what that was. I mean, it, it according to critics, it was often called derivative, but whatever. But, of course, it was there when she met... Um, Thelma Wood, who becomes the uh, the central love interest in Nightwood, mm-hmm. and um, old Thelma was born in Mankato, Kansas. By the way, ooh, yeah. <laughs> I was I was reading in see, but Jason just made devil horns. Right on. Well, there was some. I was reading in some article. I don't remember which one it was, where they were where she was talking about. It was, a, it was an article about Nightwood, and the writer had pointed out that, um, I think it was in 2018, now I, don't, I won't be able to find it right away, but a, a, a woman wrote a book about bad girlfriends mm-hmm. and dedicated that book to Thelma Wood, who she said was probably the worst mm-hmm. girlfriend ever. <laughs> uh-huh. And um, but yeah, so she becomes Robin Vogt in the, uh, in the book Nightwood. And Thelma mm-hmm. uh, Wood then later claimed that Nightwood ruined her life. And I think it might have been the alcohol, but who knows. So was there anything else that, uh, oh, no. Yeah, it was Guggenheim's father what? that died on the Titanic. Anything else in her biography that caught your attention? Um, oh, this thing about how she submitted it to force feeding so she could find out what the suffragettes <sighs> were going through. Oh, yeah. When, during her journalism career. Yeah, there's a picture mm-hmm. of that on the old, uh, yeah, on the Wikipedia page and on her, uh, on that New World Encyclopedia page. If I play acting, felt, felt my being burned with revolt at this brutal usur- usurpation. Yeah, of my, I'm probably pronouncing that right. I know what she means, usurp, but I can't. I'm not pronouncing it right. Of my functions, how they who actually suffered the ordeal in its acuteness horror must have flamed at the violation of the sanctuaries of their spirits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, that's what I find. I've been, I, there. I've listened to a lot of podcasts, history podcasts, where they've talked about the, uh, the suffragist movement, particularly around, uh, you know, early 1900s, 1912, 1914 into the war mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And, uh, and, um, particularly, uh, it's uh, stuff your mom didn't tell you or things you didn't learn in history class um, where they've talked a lot about the suffrage movement and, and really kind of how, 
you know, brutal the response was. Mm -hmm. You know, it was it, <laughs> it. It puts me considering current situations in the country. It puts me in mind of of the current you know Black Lives Matter protest, the kind of uh, violence that was uh, enacted at women that just wanted to vote. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess it. I guess it's. Well, and to be clear, they were being force fed because they were hunger striking. Right. They were they had been arrested, put in jail and were on a hunger strike. And so they decided to mm -hmm. force feed them. <laughs> There's a movie about that, actually. Yeah. It came out a few years ago with uh, I forget her name. She's a British actress. She also had an interest in boxing, apparently. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Um there was also a thing, I forget exactly what work they were referring to, but that she wrote about lesbian sex, but no one know, knew what it was, basically. Oh, that was in... The um, thing by, like, today's, like, it wasn't that vague, but, like, because it like, the fact that women have sex with each other was so not on anybody's radar, no one realized that that's what she was writing about. Yeah, that was in the book of Repulsive Women. She and Guido Bruno, um, they expected to be prosecuted for publishing that book, and nothing happened. <laughs> mm -hmm. Maybe that's why she was so embarrassed by it and hated it later in life. She thought she... What was the one that you... Yeah, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Oh, also, Ryder, which was a novel USPS, didn't want to ship it. Mm -hmm. um, I think because of the illustrations in it. Something like that, yeah. That was the book that was kind of autobiographical about her family, which created a lot of problems. Body. Yeah, each every chapter is written in a different style. Yeah, and it was very riffing off of Joyce. I was going to say it sounds very Ulysses. Yeah. Oh, Joyce. Oh. Yeah. Well, it's her first novel. We can like look at that later. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I wrote down Ulysses and writer. Okay, I had written that down. She had a suicide attempt at one point. She yep. quit drinking in the 50s. That was to write the play. And then after that, who knows? Peggy Guggenheim gave her the patronage to the patronage yep. to do Nightwood. Edit, it was edited due to concerns about censorship. Yep. And that was and that was there in Devon with with Guggenheim's um, support that she wrote Nightwood. That's where she read, met the writer. Emily Coleman, who at first wanted to burn Nightwood because she was afraid that she was going to show up in it and be portrayed badly. But then once mm -hmm. um, Barnes let her read it, she was the one that gave it to T.S. Eliot at Faber and Faber for publication. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes you should uh, I take that as a lesson. You know, sometimes your uh, your worst critic might actually end up being your best ally. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um the Winterson preface, uh -huh. preface. So Dylan Thomas called it one of. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I'm ready to Dylan talk. Dylan Thomas called it one of the three great prose books ever written by a woman, except the compliment by D.B. Ignore the insult and direct it elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, I, I must say though that of of our two introductions, that of course throughout history are supposed to uh, you know encourage us to to read the book. I was much more impressed with Jeanette Winterson's. Than uh, oh, T.S. Yeah. Eliot's, um, for all of his uh, supposed passion about the book, the uh, his intro was a touch flat. 
mm-hmm. um, and not very motivational. Although I did like Elliot's this one section from T.S. Eliot where he says, I do mean that most contemporary novels are not really written. They obtain what reality they have largely from an accurate rendering of the noises that human beings currently make in their daily simple needs of communication. And what part of a novel is not composed of these noises consists of a prose which is no more alive than that of a competent newspaper writer or government official. (laughs) And it's like, oh, he was writing this in the 1930s, and it applies to almost everything published today. (laughs) So some things I suppose I should take some comfort that uh, some things in the literary world never really actually change, you know, despite, you know, who we publish, how we publish them, you know, whether it's, whether we're focusing on women or men or, 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 or whatever, there's Mm -hmm. most prose is, is rather mediocre. And the reason it gets published is because somebody thinks it's, you know, what most people want and most people buy and they, eh. it's the things like this, like Nightwood, you know, that get published to get a lot of good reviews and then kind of vanish for a little while that actually end up being more important. And I think Winterson's essay kind of talks about that, why that is and that dynamic a little bit better than T.S. Eliot did. Maybe that's just because he was too close. Yeah, it was, yeah. You know, this happened so chronologically. Much to it. Mm-hmm. So what stood out in, in Winterson's intro for you? Well, this is not about the book. Necess- well, it's partially about the book, but it's also about books in general. I'm trying mm-hmm. to find it. Well, maybe I wrote it down. Books have become fast food to be consumed in the gaps between right. one bout of relentless living to the next. And I'm just like, and I had a picture of me reading books <laughs> on the bus. Um, and there's this other part I wrote, I wrote down quotes, but then I'm like, Oh, should I just get it? But there was a part where it says the language is not about conveying information. It's about conveying meaning. Mm-hmm. And also, um, does not offer a picture of love between women as anything safe or easy, which I kind of appreciated. Right. Right. But I'm trying, to find, I'm trying to find. I think my, one of the, uh, the first paragraphs that really grabbed my attention after, you know, the one about books have been squeezed in, which goes a long way towards explaining why our appetite for literature is waning. Um, mm-hmm. And this is, I'll come back to this other paragraph that caught my eye. Other, well, these other sentences that caught my eye, and we'll discuss our, our plan of attack for the rest of the book before we let everybody go. But um, what got my attention was that, was this one on, what is that? 10, 12 mm-hmm. um, of the intro where she writes, Nightwood has neither stereotypes nor caricatures. There is a truth to these damaged hearts that moves us beyond the negative. Humans suffer and, gay or straight, they break themselves into pieces, blur themselves with drink and drugs, choose the wrong lover, crucify themselves on their own longings, and let's not forget are crucified by a world that fears the stranger, whether in life or in love. Mm. And, you know, later on she talks about how, you know, um, 
that combined with, I guess it's on the on the next uh, on the second page over. Most of what we hype is time bound and soon vanishes. Indeed, a good test of a work of art is that it goes on interesting us long after any contemporary relevance is dead. We don't go to Shakespeare to find out about life in Elizabethan England. We go to Shakespeare to find out about ourselves now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's probably the most direct, compact statement about I, I, I want to get that on like a card. And when people ask me, what do you write? I'm going to go, eh. <laughs> you know, I'm writing about you, I'm writing about you. <laughs> I am, I am, I am writing about, you know, what, what interest, what might interest, I'm trying to write about what might interest us long after any contemporary relevance is gone. Hopefully, you know, what I wrote in, in the first book will uh, still be relevant you know, when when any relation to the conflict in Bosnia is not important to us anymore. Maybe it is now. I don't know. It's, it's certainly still important to the people in Bosnia. They're still struggling with that. But I think that's why I like the idea that writing shouldn't be about always about, you know, research and what the writer experienced. It has to be about what you are trying to understand about the world. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of interested. I'm very excited to get into this book after, particularly after Winterson's essay. I'm expecting some emotional depth, mm-hmm. right? Which I'm desperate for. <laughs> you're, de- you're desperate for emotional depth. Right, yeah. The cats are pretty shallow. It's feed me, pet me, give me something to sit on. And you know, <laughs> there's, no, there's no content there. What are your thoughts? What do you think? I'm excited about reading this. Um, Maybe in part because it's like less than a quarter of the length of Ulysses. Um, (laughs) Like when we did Ulysses, it was like, you know, I'm happy we read it. And it's, but it's also like, oh man, this is. Like I knew, I knew what I was getting myself into. Right. Like this seems like an adventure where I'm excited to, when he says it's, you know, for people who have a sensibility towards poetry. Mm-hmm. And for me as a writer, I'm always, you know, and you know this about me, is like one of my like main projects or one of my main aspirations is how to uh, mix poetry and narrative or Mm -hmm. a disjunctive narrative. Right. And I don't know how, I don't know how, you know, I don't know how difficult to read this is going to be. I haven't looked ahead. Like I I didn't cheat. Um, I'm going to go into this. I'm going to go into this blind, but I think it, it has the potential to kind of show me that, um, you know, uh, straddling that line. Right. Right. Or not, but we'll see. Yeah, I'm. I'm always very. I. I too. I always like the 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 mixing, the the blending of poetry and prose. I think that's why I'm such a big fan of uh, Michael Ondaatje. Is his mm-hmm. his ear for poetry for the for the lyric in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find it also in in other writers that you know that that pay attention to it. John Berger, for one, 
the late John mm-hmm. Berger. Um, and I'm well, my, the top shelves of my bookcase is full of people that, you know, had this that straddled the two. Kerouac even did it, you know, straddled poetry and prose and and pulled them together. But they weren't uh, they weren't quite doing the disjointed, disjunctive thing that you're trying to mm-hmm. do. Which, if you, I don't know, I know we've talked about this before, but have you read um, what is it? Ondaatje's the autobiography of Billy the Kid. You gave me one book of his. I think I did read that one. Okay. I think that's the one you gave me. Maybe. Or maybe you just told me to get it. That's the only th- I've read one book by him, and I think it was him. That. Okay, because that kind of does the other that. one. Coming through slaughter is poetry, oh, correct? It's it's more prose. It's it's more an actual novel, yeah. but it does have a disjointed narrative structure similar. Yeah. It's it's not quite as disjointed as I think what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. From what we've talked about, so that's why that's to. why I think Billy the Kid might be of more interest to you because mm. it is more poetry. In fact, it's often shelved in poetry rather than prose, but it's also shelved yeah. with his novels. Yeah, I I think I did read it, and it was probably like eighteen years ago. Yeah, maybe revisit. Who knows? Yeah, because again, I mean. That's the other thing is is I'm hoping my brain is ready for whatever's in here. My I don't think my brain was ready for Joyce, just like my brain 20 years ago wasn't ready for um, Lawrence Durrell's The Alexandria Quartet. Um, I think maybe if I went back to read Ulysses again, it might suddenly go, oh, click in. Maybe my brain's gotten better. Tenderized? Yeah, tenderized. Since 2018? <laughs> Um, but the, also the, uh, you know, with the Alexandria quartet, I picked that up because Bobby Louise Hawkins recommended it. Oh, the Alexandria quartet. It's delightful. It's wonderful. It's, it's one of those treasured things and I need to reread it again. Um, but I had, Bobby had recommended it. I picked it up. I read the first six pages like going, I don't get it. I don't know what's, I don't understand what's going on. I'm not following the language or something. I put it down. Six weeks later, I picked it up and my brain went, there you are. That's it. Do that. Mm -hmm. And I read through the first book in a week after that. It was Mm -hmm. like, it clicked. And then I- Oh, four pages, four books. Yep. Got it. Um, Justine, um, Mount Olive, Balthazar, and Clea are the four books. It's wonderful. You know, the language is fantastic. And it's all about, you know, the the four takes on one particular event. Uh-huh. It's fantastic. Why do I not know about this? Why have we not discussed this before? We haven't. It's hard. To, it's kind of hard to find them now. They, you, Penguin used to have a box set of it that they put out. Um, all four books oh, together. They sell, them in, they sell them separately. Yeah, now they sell them separately. So they're kind of hard to find all together. Wow. They should Amazon keep, people did not love it. They should, uh, Amazon people. That's because they don't know what they're talking about. I just put things on my list there so I can remember. But okay. so yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it because I I'm looking for that next thing that that hits the right emotional spot. Mm-hmm. Right now, um, both Jeanette Winterson and T. S. Eliot recommend that it be read more than once of course right are you proposing something so the, here's the, here's the thing 
as okay. short as it is, I don't know what your mm-hmm. schedule is like, but as short as it is. I'm in the middle of a quarantine. Right. We could read mm-hmm. the whole thing in two weeks before our next episode, discuss it, read it again in the next two weeks. And dis- and so we would basically keep the same number of episodes we'd planned, or we could add an episode. So we'll read the half we'd planned on for the first for the next one, then discuss it, read the second half for the third episode and discuss it, and then take two weeks, read the whole thing in one go and discuss it again. Would you want to do that or keep to our original plan? No, this is interesting. Okay, so I think um, you see I have two copies. Yeah. This is the <laughs> shitty copy I, I got from Abe Books, and this is the one I borrowed from my friend Stacy because it has the intro. I'll probably the give it back to her. Um, yeah. Okay. So I think I I I kind of like the idea of reading it twice. Uh-huh. Um, I don't usually read things more than once. Yep. And because it's so short, I feel open to that being as Ulysses, I think we did six. So yeah. um, the only thing I will say is I will know – I will know more about that plan once I get into it. Cause okay. if this is 180 pages of the hardest parts of Ulysses, that's going to be a very different read <laughs> than 180 pages of right. Something pretty else. straight narrative with some pretty language. You okay. Know? So then well, I guess we'll keep it as two weeks to read the first half, two weeks to read the second half. And then we'll, I was going to say that would probably be better, a go- better plan. And then if once, because once I get, once I figure we get through it first one time, it'll be easier to get through it a second yes. time. Yes. So we can do it the whole book in one go in two weeks and then talk about it after we've plowed through the halves. Yes. Okay. That works. Let's do that. We'll, we'll add an episode, which is cool. We can do that. I like talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to keep me around, I know. I know. Okay, so that's so then we'll for for the next one, we'll do Bow Down, the Somnibule, Night Watch, and the Squatter. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Yep. So page three through Yes. That's whatever what we talked about. Through eighty-three. Yeah. And then eighty-four through one. 80. Chris, I'm going to be doing the squatter. So I have a different edition. My older one is right. different. So for me... Bow down, the somnibule, night watch, the squatter. Yeah, because my, my, um, hmm. my edition has 170 pages. Mm-hmm. We're completing the squatter, right? So, so okay, so my, yeah, got it. You just got bigger this type works. than this one. No, mine's smaller because mine's a smaller book. It also like... Has a lot of white space right here. You see this? Yeah. Hey. I like it. It's, it's petite. Right on. Now I have a reason not to watch, not to convince myself it's more fun to watch TV and drink wine at night. I can. Can I tell you, and I, I will probably finish it tonight so it won't be a problem, but I've been watching. And I feel I feel very emotionally invested in a way that's probably not healthy. Um, I've been watching Normal People on Hulu. Do you know about this? No. It's based on a book. It is ripping my heart out. Maybe I don't know if it's the quarantine talking or what, but it is. 
Um, okay, so one of the I had wanted to see it, but the thing is, do you know who Brene Brown is? Uh huh. Okay, yep. so I've got I a couple of her, her books podcast. I need to read. Yeah, yeah. So I listened to her podcast, and someone asked her. She had like a, a podcast where people could just ask her questions, oh. and they said, "What things are you watching that are?" this is not the way it was worded, but in so many words, emotionally intelligent. Mm -hmm. And she goes, I'm going to assume that you mean not necessarily that the characters are emotionally intelligent, but that you know that the writer has an understanding of human emotion. And she named two things, one of which I had seen already and I forget what it was. Mm -hmm. And the other one was normal people. Um, and it is, I'm looking it up right now. It's uh, takes, it's fresh. It was based on a novel. And it basically, it's just a story about two people who eat and date and then don't and then do. And then, and it is like, it's like, I watch it and I'm like, I know, I know what this feels like. like it's all <laughs> like what's not said. Right. You know what I mean? And it's, it's, and, and the boning is amazing. Like these guys, these guys really have great sexual chemistry. So it's basically two like pretty 20 year olds having a lot of sex that looks like of the very good variety. And, and then, and then being kind of like, you know, emotionally distant or not, it's, it's just like, <laughs> and I'm obsessed with it. And I have, I think, three episodes left. And I don't know how it's, how it's going to end. But if I don't like the ending, I'm, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. They're like, it's 12 episodes. They're half hour each. Right. Oh, that'd be Check easy to out. get through. You might, you might actually might. like okay. it. Okay. Okay. Of your, you know, you, you of being the persuasion of someone who likes emotional depth. Yeah. Yeah. Although I'm, I'm, I'm. Do I really want to watch people having sex <laughs> or pretending to have sex? I don't know. I don't know. It's uh that doesn't really yeah. have anything to do with quarantine anymore. It's so much as like I'm fucking. <laughs> yeah, quarantine's not helping. Quarantine's but, not yeah. helping, but. But like I watched this, like the reason I would, when you texted me and said, I'm ready, I was watching normal people. I'm like, <laughs> I don't give a shit. He's waiting. I like, right on. He said, five, we're doing five. <laughs> I get it. I understand. Um, well, we should, we should, we should wrap up the, the show and then we'll keep on talking. So we'll be back. Um, in a, well, I don't know when the audience will see it, but we'll be back next talking about the first four chapters of, of Nightwood. So thanks for listening. Hope you guys had fun. We did. I did. Did you? Thanks, guys. I did. <laughs> the Outrider podcast is recorded by me, Jason Quinn-Malott, and the sound editing and post-production is performed by Heather Ann Eden. <laughs>